He does a series of stories for William Randolph Hearst, and then he heads to the Far East. And it's uh, during this foray, what he called his, his round-the-world tour, that he's captured by bandits, held for ransom, and then shot. Welcome to Spice Up Your Life. write about and, and I hear a lot about the, the, the thing this called, Stalin called the five-year plan which was kind of the, the beginning of the mass starvation but what was that five-year plan so the the five-year plan uh, began in 1928 and it, and it was a, a move to accelerate and help the Soviet Union catch up uh, in terms uh, of industrialization first Uh, there was always the question uh, of what to do in, in terms of agriculture because of the nature of, you know, farms uh, in Ukraine and, and, and Russia uh, before the revolution and the way things had been done, the use of livestock, uh, things were not very mechanized. And, and so when when the soviets initiated uh the the five-year plan uh it it was to speed up uh both in terms of industrialization of of the factories uh to get products uh made and distributed and they would you know they would struggle with that uh for years and years and years beyond the first five-year plan Because even as much as they increased production, they, they still suffered in, in terms of distribution. And, and so the Russian, you know, the queues, the long queues for basic goods uh, was very prevalent. And you see it in pictures all the time from this time period. And toward the end of the first five-year plan was really the push to socialize agriculture. I mean, agriculture had been almost uh, in the in the 20s what was called the new economic plan, where they could barter and they could exchange, you know, goods uh, for other goods, and and hold their their own little markets with with no real control. And uh, Stalin wanted to to end that and yeah. the. NEP and institute socialization uh, of agriculture and, and the direction they went in in terms of large collective farms, uh, large, super large state farms. Uh, part of that had been what was happening in other agricultural nations like Canada, the United States, Australia, Argentina, the biggest Uh, producers uh, of of grain in the world, uh, they had greatly mechanized a production. And that's what led in the early 30s to this glut, uh, you know, surplus, a greater surplus than they'd ever had in terms of enough food, you know, for everyone. Yeah. There just were no jobs 
that was the problem and the, and, and the, the collapse of the banking system uh, exacerbated conditions so so that you know you had all these people uh, who were unemployed the diaries can you can you give me some examples of, of the diaries so uh, Jones liked to carry these what I would call pocket pocket notebooks they were quite small and so uh, he, he used those uh, most every time he went on reporting assignments and what happened was that when uh, Gareth's family when his aunt uh, was finally moved out, out of uh, the family home they discovered a suitcase full of these notebook diaries oh. a- and as they began to look through them uh, they, they realized that this really was the source material that he had used for all of his newspaper articles. And, and so I believe the first time they were exhibited was at Cambridge university in 2009. Yeah. And, and I heard, uh, news reports about that and it piqued my interest, uh, to the point where I started uh, doing some investigating. Uh, but, I didn't really get very far until I, I found uh, Jones mentioned in Timothy Snyder's uh, hi- history uh, called Bloodlands. Okay. And in the first chapter, he talks about this young reporter Gareth Jones reporting on the on the famine, and all of a sudden everything clicked for me, uh, and I was I was on my way. I remember him describing uh, being at a train station and, and seeing these these young young boys, the you know the lost boys, besprizoni, uh, the the Russian word. Uh, it was a term that came really out of the the Civil War to to, this, to describe orphans. Okay. And now it was being used to describe uh, these young young children uh, either abandoned or whose parents had passed away uh, and he sees them in in a train station uh, being being carted away and and just could tell they were ravaged by typhoid uh, the swollen bellies uh, spindly legs uh, and the way he described them uh, I found just uh, totally moving um, and he always had an affection for young people. He always made it a point to interview young people uh, because he believed that it, it's in the young people that you will see the direction, you know, of a country going. The the more I, I hear you and the more we talk about this, I just don't really, I mean, this uh, was... A genocide. Um, the Holodomor whole situation was genocide, and um, and still nobody has ever been. You know, in in Nuremberg, they, they were talking yeah. about the Jews and the and the the Germans and everything, but nobody has ever been uh, put on trial, prosecuted, prosecuted for this. How is that possible? Well, you know, it's politics. The way that 
the UN, the United Nations, after World War II, write, wrote the laws, you know, regarding genocide. Yeah. It was very difficult uh, to get that passed, you know, by a number of countries, and the Soviet Union uh, really put put up some major roadblocks in in terms of what language could be used to define what constituted genocide. Now, the way that uh, Raphael Lemkin, uh, who was an Ukrainian-American, uh, who had worked uh, during the war at the Nuremberg trials. Again, I read parts from Wikipedia. Raphael Lemkin was a lawyer and is best known for coining the word genocide. Lemkin's idea of genocide as an offense against international law was widely accepted by the international community and was one of the legal basis of the Nuremberg trials. When he drafted the the first resolution of what constituted genocide, uh, he had very, he had great difficulty getting the UN to to agree to that particular definition. Okay, and so that uh, it it quickly became politicized. Uh, only 19 nations have recognized what happened. Uh, in Ukraine as genocide. Still? Yeah. But it sounds a bit like like um, Turkey's Erdogan, who is... Uh, the Armenian genocide. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's uh, that's the unfortunate circumstances uh, of, you know, the political climate today and how history uh, is viewed. And I, I, I find that to be probably the, the, the overriding problem that that we face and and that you know scholars and historians face and in terms of how do we write history when uh so many will attempt to undermine and to give a false you know impression in terms of of what happened we've become everything's become so relative that, that no no story has, you know, connections to the truth. Disinformation. Yes, yeah. We live in that post-truth era uh, where it, it's one lie after another. But it is very interesting, the, the thing with Putin and Erdogan. I mean, they have now become best friends. Uh, they're, they're fighting wars together in, in Syria and they're both um, sort of laughing at history. And Putin calls um, the the Holodomor as one of the you you write this uh, one of the twentieth yes. century's most famous myths and vitriolic pieces of anti-Soviet propaganda. Yeah, that's a, that's a unfortunate. The one thing I, I can and and many people point to is well, if that did not happen. What, what's the alternative narrative? Because, you know, everything that we know, all the, the, once they opened up uh, the, the records after the fall of the, the Soviet Empire and 
1991. Yeah. And people could archive the records and the records of what was done, both, you know, in secret decrees as well as Politburo uh, decrees. It became quite clear that the evidence uh, was overwhelming that what reporters like Jones had seen and what they reported about the, the number of deaths was not exaggerated, was not a hoax. And, and the, you know, the cases of cannibalism, the cases of, uh, you know, people dying in the streets, uh, all of that was authenticated. And, and the idea that there was no famine or that Stalin was not responsible for these deaths uh, is an argument that uh, really it, it lacks a factual basis. I mean, people can point to the idea that, well, Stalin delivered seed to Ukraine on, on two different occasions to, make, to ensure that the spring sowing, you know, would, would take place uh, and they would have a, you know, they would have a crop, which they did. Except that by that point, millions of people had already starved to death. So yeah. if you try to, you know, mitigate the suffering by donating, by giving back seed that had already been taken, uh, that somehow cancels out what has happened before. And still Putin is calling it the hawks. Yeah, yeah. But also I know that, that, that there was a lot of archival records uh, in the United States which also said the same thing, and FDR Roosevelt was also kind of ignoring it, wasn't he? Yes, I mean, uh, that that's something that I investigated uh, to write the, pa the paper on, on recognition. And because the United States did not have diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union and didn't have an embassy uh, in Moscow, Uh, they devoted considerable uh, manpower uh, to places like Riga and Poland, Germany, uh, where they they got as much information uh, from people exiting the Soviet Union, reporting on conditions there, reading newspapers. So getting as much information as they could without actually having an embassy there. And the State Department ar archives uh, on the Soviet Union at this time period, it's, it's, it's really trem a tremendous archive uh, of documentation showing exactly how much really the State Department uh, knew about conditions, uh, deteriorating conditions in the Soviet Union in 1932 and 1933 people were coming out and saying you know there's going to be a famine there's going to be a famine mm. uh and even agricultural experts were c coming back and saying conditions are 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 terrible uh a disaster is looming and so it, it's not like this was not known uh by multiple governments 
uh, including, you know, the State Department of the United States, uh, how much that was communicated to Roosevelt himself. Uh, there's not a, a tremendous amount uh, of uh, evidence uh, to support that. No. Mainly because his agenda was working toward recognition of the Soviet Union. So, of course, he, he wouldn't want to be bothered with, you know, reports uh, from from the uh, Eastern European division of the State Department. He could easily ignore uh, those reports uh, and, and focus on, on, you know, what he wanted to do uh, to alleviate the problems in, in American agriculture and unemployment. Every time I hear sad stories like these, I, I my my head starts to spin. And, and but um, the, Durante discourages Gareth Jones quite a lot. Uh, I mean, they were kind of well, they were polarizing each other uh, during the reporting. But what what happened at the end? Uh, for, for Jones, he you know when he comes out of of the Soviet Union, uh, he goes back to Germany. And he, he does another series of reports on on really the uh, Nazi dic- dictatorship uh, taking hold in, in Germany. And that gives him considerable uh, pause because, you know, he, he, he basically had uh, many acquaintances and, and friends in Germany. Uh, he had traveled there at least once every year since 1923. Uh, and, you know, he was very, he was very fond uh, of German neatness, uh, German love of culture. It, it suited his temperament. Mm -hmm. And so what he saw happening, it gave him, you know, grave concerns, uh, in terms of the fanaticism he saw in, in the Nazis. And he compared, uh, that fanaticism, that idealistic fanaticism, and and how it could really turn destructive, uh, and he compared the Nazis to the Bolsheviks, again, as uh, different sides, but uh, fearing from each side that the ardor that they brought to their ideology Uh, would result in in almost certain war. You know, he was predicting in 1933 that uh, things were were you know dark storms were gathering, uh, and, and nothing was working in in terms of settling differences between countries as a result of really the failure of the Treaty of Versailles. He predicts war, and he predicted that it would be fought, you know, a lot in the air, uh, and the the importance of of air flight uh, w- would dictate how that war was going to be fought. And he was he was absolutely correct about that. Well, he certainly acquired a lot of enemies, and and then he uh, gets shot in China the following year, right? In in thirty five. Uh, In 34, uh, Jones covered, uh, uh, 
he, he went to Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, he went back to, to Germany. And then he, he headed to the United States. Uh, and he, he's in the United States uh, by November of 1934 to cover the election. Uh, he travels out to the West Coast. He does a series of stories for William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. Uh, and and then he heads to the Far East, where he's to write about uh, Japanese incursions into Manchuria. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, during this foray, what he called his, his round the world tour, that he's captured uh, by bandits, uh, held for ransom, uh, and then shot uh, on on the day before he would have turned uh, 30 years old. He certainly was an uncomfortable um, journalist, and, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people were not that sad to see him uh, disappear. Yeah, it's, it's really an unfortunate uh, story in, in terms of somebody who, who re really was uh, quite knowledgeable about you know, world affairs. He had he had met all of the leading uh, political figures. Uh, he was quite quite a brilliant linguist. Uh, he he moved very easily uh, with all kinds of people. Mm -hmm. His his heart was for you know the common people, workers, uh, and he he wanted to make sure that his reporting uh, showed the effects of decisions being made and how it impacted on the, the, the many, many poor people at, at this time during really what was the great financial depression uh, of the 20th century. To me, that was really what drove uh, his journalism uh, was, was to bring that to light. And uh, he, he certainly he certainly did that and uh, in, in, in accomplished so much in such a brief time. But what happened to Durante then? I mean, he, he, he lived on, didn't he? Durante definitely did, did live on. He en ended up uh, moving to the United States, mm -hmm. uh, living in, in Florida, writing his memoirs. And in uh, those memoirs, uh, he fully admits uh, that mass starvation had occurred in 1932-33, uh, killing millions of people. And so it adds to the duplicitous nature of, of him and his reporting uh, in, in terms of, well, yeah, you admit it now, but at the time he, he started the entire famine denial Uh, movement in, in, in that has continued, uh, you know, through the course of time. Okay, I'm going to read a few sections from Ray Gamache's book, Gareth Jones, Eyewitness to the Holodomor. In August 1935, Gareth Jones was kidnapped by bandits in China. One of the many mysteries surrounding Jones's death was the fact that the vehicle he was kidnapped from belonged to persons associated to the NKVD. The functions of the OGPU, the secret police organization, were transferred to the NKVD in 1934 
giving it monopoly over law enforcement activities that lasted until the end of World War II. During this period, the NKVD included both ordinary public order activities as well as secret police activities. The NKVD is known for its role in political repression and for carrying out the Great Purge under Joseph Stalin. It was led by Genrik Jagoda, Nikolai Yezov and Lavrenti Beria. One day before Gareth Jones would have turned 30 years of age, the most reliable eyewitness of the Holodomor of 1932-1933 was eliminated and effectively silenced. His articles, like the famine itself, languishing in obscurity for more than 70 years. Finally, here's a passage that I think sums Professor Regamash's current work effectively and succinctly. Nineteen nations have recognized the Holodomor as genocide. Yet this most monstrous crime against humanity has not the same connotative resonance that Auschwitz or the Holocaust has. Perhaps that is because from the very beginning the Soviets and Stalin denied that there even was a famine, and those denials were parroted by Western journalists like Fischer and Durante, by diplomats like Herriot and by celebrities like George Bernard Shaw. Stalin's Second October Revolution, a revolution from above, became conflated with the drive for industrialization through collectivization and the socialization of agriculture. Conditions that existed 80 years ago should not confuse us today. As many scholars have pointed out, there is still considerable disagreement on not only the nature of the crime and the identity of the victims, but also as to whether or not the Holodomor ought to be considered genocide. As Roman Serbin has noted, Traditional famine denial has been updated to famine genocide denial, but the essence of the ideological trappings is the same. Today's famine genocide deniers are the spiritual heirs of the first famine deniers, Stalin and those who helped him carry out the most heinous of crimes against the Ukrainian nation or to deny its existence. We can sort of round up now regarding uh, Jones because I, I really want to know what, what, what do the Ukrainians know about uh, Jones and what he tried to accomplish for the Ukrainian people? Yeah, I mean, that's been uh, fairly well documented uh, in, two, in, in, the, in the early 2000s. Uh, Ukrainians really took an interest in Jones's reporting. And as more and more came to light, uh, they recognized that his reporting served uh, as eyewitness testimony uh, to what had happened. Mm -hmm. And and so, uh, really, Jones was not the only journalist to report about famine in, in Ukraine. Many other reporters did stories as, as well. Uh, Jones just became more visible uh, be, because uh, of the way that his work resurfaced uh, in, in, in 2006 and 2007, 8, 9, when the diary 
notebooks were first exhibited uh, at uh, Cambridge University. And so tremendous interest was generated uh, when, when the Ukrainians uh, saw Jones as something of a hero and commemorated uh, what he had done as they, you know, remembered uh, the Holodomor and they, they, they hold commemoration ceremonies every November. Jones really has been considered, a, you know, a hero mm. at least since 2006 when they placed a plaque back in Aberystwyth, uh, written in Ukraine, English, and Welsh, uh, thanking him for his reporting uh, of, of the famine uh, and for really helping Ukrainians to remember what happened. Well, I really want to thank you, and, and especially to, to open my eyes to the starvation of more than 4 million Ukrainians, um, a genocide which has not been, um, you know, out in the open too much and not not certainly enough, uh, I think. So, so. I, I might just add yeah, that please. Um, this September there is a, a historical, a joint German-Ukrainian historical commission that are is looking at Uh, and pushing for German recognition uh, of the famine, okay. uh, of the genocide, mm -hmm. and so uh, those those, those uh, there's there's going to be a conference. Uh, the, the commission will have people present making presentations, uh, and, and it's it could be that that. The German government of uh, Angela Merkel is going to recognize uh, the genocide. That would be really big news, uh, and so I'm, I'm anxious to see what uh, you know what happens in the fall, and that may be a good time for us to to revisit that. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. She's a brave woman. Yes, she is. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Professor Ray Gamash, it sure was an honor having you as my guest and uh, for telling us about the extraordinary reporter Gareth Jones and uh, on your book on him called Gareth Jones, Eyewitness to the Holodomor, which tells the reader about how Stalin let more than 4 million Ukrainians starve to death in the early 1930s. Well, th thank you for having me. I hope we talk again in September or something, or maybe earlier. Thank you. You can also visit us on Facebook and Instagram and the pages Spice Up Your Life, where I will post extra material from each episode. Hope you enjoy, and until next time, thank you. Bye-bye.